Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics, and a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. Far from the glamorous world of Supreme Court cases and sensational murder trials, public defenders throughout America, and indeed the world, provide a vital service for those citizens caught in the law's crosshairs who are unable to pay for their defense. With me today to discuss the challenges, triumphs, and crazy stories from life in the perhaps less glamorous but vital legal trenches is Zeke Webster. Zeke, welcome. Welcome, Abby. It's great to be here. So why don't we start with the most obvious uh, definitional question, but one uh, which I hope should clear up some uh, misconceptions. What exactly is a public defender uh, and how does it uh, how is it different from, say, concepts like uh, legal aid? Uh, That's a that's a good question. And it's it's one that my clients are often confused by. Um, So the the first part of it is that um, in the United States, if you've been accused of a crime um, with some narrow exceptions, you have a right to a lawyer that will represent you that you do not have to pay in advance. Um, And a lot of different jurisdictions handle, uh, take different approaches to how to handle that constitutional requirement. Uh, But many of them, including the county in North Carolina where I work, have a dedicated public defender's office, which is, uh, uh, you know, an office where you have attorneys that are employees of the state and the only thing that we do is that we represent uh, criminal defendants that cannot afford a lawyer of their own in those criminal cases. And um, I guess the distinction, sorry, I guess the distinction would be uh, with legal aid, you know, that's a, a nonprofit. It is not uh, a part of the government, and it applies to other uh, legal problems that uh, poor people might have where you might have a need, but we only do criminal work. Uh, the other thing is that a, a number of jurisdictions, and, and also, well, I let me back up a step. Uh, the other way, uh, what a lot of people confuse for public defenders are um, private defense attorneys who take clients that have been appointed because they cannot afford a lawyer of their own. And in a lot of places, that's the only way in which indigent people are represented. There is no public defender's office. And then you have other places like where I work that uh, have both. And you can kind of go back and forth on how you feel about that. And I think that there are, there are good public defenders and bad public defenders and that there are good attorneys that take court appointments and there are bad attorneys that take court appointments. But I'm a public defender. Um, I'm a state employee and I only do criminal matters and I'm happy with it that way, at least for now. So the end of your answer gave me a very good segue into my next question, which is public defenders tend to have a fairly um, unfortunate and very somewhat negative stereotype against them. They're often seen as like, this is the bottom of the barrel that I could get. Uh, this is only for people who can't afford anything and they're guaranteed a loss. Um, in your experience, uh, how justified is this sort of approach? Um, and how do you handle it when I'm sure, uh, you have many clients who say, oh, gee, I have a public defender. Now I'm doomed. 
Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated, obviously, but um, I think it is, generally speaking, not justified. Um, to the extent that it is justified, uh, there certainly are um, public defenders out there that, um, you know, that are, that are just kind of in it for relatively mercenary reasons and maybe would rather be doing a different kind of work or would rather uh, work for their own firm or, or something like that and for whatever reason don't feel like they can and wind up as a public defender. But uh, there are also an awful lot of public defenders out there that are um, to one degree or another uh, ideologically kind of motivated and then there are public defenders that simply... Um, are very good at attorneys. And I think that there, um, there, there's a lot of variation in terms of how well compensated public defenders are from place to place. Uh, it's not a job that one like becomes rich doing, but you know, you're still a, a reasonably secure middle-class, uh, you know, civil servant. The other thing is that, um, when insofar as, people get poor representation from public defenders, what is much, much, much more likely to be the cause of that is that there are a lot of public defenders' offices that are just really inadequately um, funded. And so you have a lot of places where public defenders are given workloads that no attorney, no matter how diligent and no matter how competent, could handle in an effective way that's going to give good representation to each client. Uh, fortunately, I don't think that I work in one of those jurisdictions. Um, you know, I certainly have a lot of clients and I certainly stay busy, but, um, I feel like for the most part, uh, I have the resources available to me that I need to do a good job for my clients. So you mentioned the question of resources, um, uh, and I noticed uh, you uh, discuss sometimes uh, the difference between public defender's office and various jurisdictions. Um, do, do people who are, even if they're poor, if they live in cities, do they benefit indirectly from the fact that they live in cities which tend to have relatively more resources even if they're poor cities compared to uh, rural areas, or is it really absolutely, uh, or is it not so easy to break it down uh, city rural wise? Um, I, I don't have any kind of sophisticated statistical answer to that question. Um, I think that my guess would be that you're going to tend to see more of a variation from state to state. Because um, at least in North Carolina, and I, which is where I work, and I think that we're relatively typical in this respect, uh, the budget and funding and salary and number of positions and so on and so forth for the public defender's offices are set by the state government. Uh, and there's just a lot of variation. I mean, I, I think that uh, earlier this week I, I saw a few stories about um, – uh, some jurisdictions in, I think, uh, rural Kentucky and um, in Arizona where you have these, these horror stories of individual public defenders that would be catching hundreds and hundreds of felony cases per year uh, at a rate that's just not um, 
feasible for anyone to work. But uh, the jurisdiction that I work in is actually a, it's a rural county. It's a large rural county that, um, and in fact, we have kind of a strange arrangement where um, uh, some of the attorneys in the office have to do kind of a, almost a circuit around the county where we go out and we hold court in these tiny little towns out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and we might only have, hold court a, there a couple times a month. But I don't think that the fact that it's a, I mean, even though it's a rural jurisdiction, uh, I think that we are able to maintain a pretty reasonable uh, caseload in terms of having the resources that we need to do what we need to do. It, it's really just, uh, it's, it's not something that, that, that fits neatly into the kind of divisions or, or possibly political narratives that, that, um, that you might hear people try to fit it into. That's fair. So taking that into account, why don't you uh, run me and our listeners through, say, a typical day or a typical week or a typical month in terms of caseload, clients, um, problems you have to deal with as a public defender? Um, okay, so I am, I'm kind of a, a baby public defender at this point. I have, I've only been working as a public defender for a year, and I've only been an attorney uh, since 2015. And the way, uh, the way my current responsibility at uh, work is set up is that I work in uh, what's called district court. And um, confusingly, th there's, there's a distinction like this in a lot of states in North Carolina, but, well, sorry, states in the United States, but um, we have completely different nomenclature for it everywhere uh, that you would go. But anyway, uh, in district court, you can only actually try uh, misdemeanors. You can only try very, uh, very small crimes. And so you're not usually looking at people that are at risk of going to prison for, you know, years on end. You're not dealing with, with rapes or murders or things like that. Um, and in part, that means that I, I have a pretty high caseload and a pretty high rate of turnover. So I will usually go to court. Um, I think it comes out to between 15, sometimes somewhere between 15 and 20 days per month, I'll be in court in the morning. And my day is that I'll, I'll arrive to court and I'll have a list of my cases that are uh, in court on that date. Uh, on a slow day, I might have you know, five or six on a busy day, it might be closer to 20. And um, I stay in court and I work my cases uh, as I can. And then eventually when we go through the calendar and every, every case that's on the calendar has been disposed of in one way or another, uh, then I go back to the office and I deal with filing and I uh, deal with phone calls. And if I have motions to write, I do that. And if there's uh, a case where there's some way in which I need to uh, investigate a factual question or get documents, I take care of that. And then I prep everything for the next day and just kind of rinse and repeat. Um, I mean, as far as challenges, I, one of the things that I've, that I've noticed, and um, I, I am one of the public defenders for whom there is a connection, there's a very strong connection between why I think that my own work is important 
and my larger opinions about the, the criminal justice system. And I find that I very frequently will see ways in which the rest of the people involved in the system are very, um, are very callous or desensitized to the way in which people's lives might be very, very significantly damaged by what happens in court. And, you know, I very often will find that I appear to be the only person in the room that is bothered by it when something is happening that I think is unjust or um, disproportionate or, or what have you. And, um, you know, if, in terms of specific examples of that, I think we probably don't have enough time on the podcast for me to cover everything. But, um, uh, you know, on top of the general level that it's a, it's a high-stress job, it's a job that involves uh, dealing with a lot of different people every single day, and some of them are a lot easier to deal with than others. It's, um, uh, it, it can be difficult just because it has this sort of isolating effect sometimes. So, but I figure you work in a fairly small, it sounds like a fairly intimate in the sense of not many people uh, around. It's not an enormous firm or an enormous uh, jurisdiction. You Surely you have to, on some level, form personal relationships, not only with your colleagues in the public defender's office, but also uh, with people in prosecution and law enforcement and so on and so forth. And have you have you broken through to anybody does any do you feel like anybody sometimes at least hears or is willing to listen to your concerns or are they like listen i've been in the system for too long i've heard it all i just want to go home we all do our jobs and that's the end of it uh well it usually has kind of a different character and that i will I'll often find that I can look at a particular set of facts and react to them in an entirely different way than, um, than someone on the other side of the question might. Even uh, somebody that I, I have a, a pretty consistent, you know, amicable relation with. Um, so l- let me try and be more specific. Um, in, in district court, a lot of what I see are charges that are brought by um, school resource officers against uh, high school students. Um, So like in North Carolina, you can be charged as an adult, uh, at least at the moment, you can be charged as an adult when you turn 16. And um, often these uh, school resource officers will charge students with um, things like uh, disorderly conduct or, or simple affray or simple assault for getting in fights at school. Or, or sometimes even like um, being loud and disruptive and mouthing off to uh, faculty or something like that at the public high schools. And I, I will often, when I have a case like this, if I'm talking to the, the, um, you know, the resource officer that brought the charge or if I'm talking to the DA that's prosecuting it or, or even the judge that's, um, you know, that would hear the case if it were to go to, tri- if it were to, go to trial, uh, their attitude is very often that, well, obviously this kid is is making some, some mista- mistakes and is going in the wrong direction, and having the criminal justice system interact with their life is a way for them to like learn a valuable lesson or have some tough love or something like that. And 
my view of it is that um, the way the kinds of penalties that could potentially attach to this conduct the minute the criminal justice system becomes involved are far more uh, harsh than I think are would be reasonable to throw on, uh, you know, a 16-year-old who got in a fight at school. And, you know, and, and um, I guess I don't really try to, to really break through the worldview of, um, of the other people in the system. But if I'm trying to, you know, make a deal for a kid like that, I, choose, I usually try to, you know, isolate the kid and, and, and say, you know, to the DA essentially, well, look, this is a good kid. You know, this is, it, it, you know, it's not like they, he has some more serious record. This is not that big deal in the grand scheme of things. Let's do this. Um, and you kind of approach it in that way. But the, you know, if, if I were to be, you know, totally candid with these people um, in the way that I'm candid, you know, here or on Twitter, I'd say that uh, it's an injustice that the school resource officer took this charge out in the first place. And that it's, this is something that happens to um, a, a child that grows up in a poor family that goes to a, a high school in a poor rural district. It's not something that happens to a, a child that grows up in a position of privilege in some leafy suburb somewhere. And to a child like that, if they get in a fight at school, what's going to happen to them is that they might be suspended or they might, you know, just except that their parents are going to, you know, give them a firm talking to and that that's how they're going to learn that they shouldn't do this and that what they did was wrong. But here for these, these, um, these children that are kind of put in a different mental category, I think, than, than more privileged children are, the result is that we, you know, we have a police officer, somebody, an armed agent of the state with a gun takes out a charge on them and tells them you have to go to court. And if you don't go to court, we're going to put out an order for your arrest and you might be sent to jail. And if you don't play your cards right when you go to court, you might have an arre- a, uh, a criminal conviction that's going to follow you for ent- your entire life, that you're going to have to disclose to every job you ever apply for, that is going to hold you back if you want to go to college or if you want to join the military or apply for public benefits or all sorts of things. And um, it's... It's, it's hard to get people that aren't already kind of disposed to be public defenders um, to, to understand things that way. Wow. Uh, that, that really does sound extreme. Um, I mean, from the way you sound, the way you describe it, it sounds like typical disciplinary stuff that in normal times, the school would normally handle in-house with, like you said, suspensions or talking tos or, 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 you know, in the worst case, expulsion, but not, uh, but not a criminal record. So while we're on the subject of issues that uh, often cause injustices, even though on the surface they sound like a good idea, um, you and I both know of uh, Greg Doucette and his podcast. And one of the things he talks about uh, are is the problem of how misdemeanors, as you put it, um, such as traffic violations and, the, and whatnot, are, are often, there's a perverse incentive in which instead of really trying to ensure public safety, uh, officers basically have an incentive to milk and bilk 
often poorer citizens for everything they're worth, uh, even when they're really not endangering anybody. Um, how do you hand, I'm sure you handle cases like that. And I'm even more curious as to how would you suggest uh, reforming that system? Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely do handle cases like that. And, um, you know, the, um, I don't think they really publicize it, but a district criminal court, meaning the court that deals with misdemeanors, with small crimes, is a net revenue generator for the state of North Carolina. Um, because, you know, if somebody walks in and they, and they plead guilty to um, a traffic offense or, you know, a, a disorderly conduct charge or uh, public, uh, you know, public intoxication or because they violated a noise ordinance or something like that, uh, virtually all of them are going to walk out having to pay uh, court costs at minimum, and court costs are over $200. Uh, the other thing that I see a, a huge amount of is uh, that I think traffic enforcement, in um, certainly in North Carolina and, and in many other places, is essentially a uh, uh, it's a, essentially a tax on poverty or a criminalization of poverty, because um, if you uh, if you get a traffic ticket in North Carolina, and either you don't go to court when you're told to go to court to deal with the ticket, or if you are unable to pay whatever the financial obligations are of the ticket, well then you lose your driver's license, and um, you lose your driver's license until you either pay what you owe, or if you missed court until you put it back on the calendar and and uh, deal with it in some way. And then if you are, if a police officer catches you driving without your driver's license, well, that's another charge. And if you plead guilty to that, well, now you have another fine and you can't get your driver's license until you pay both the first fine and the second fine. And uh, pe for people where being able to even pay for a car and gas and insurance is a stretch on their budget, uh, you'll very often find people that just sort of fall into this hole uh, where it compounds upon itself and and they've and they reach a point where they've been driving without a license for you know for a decade and if they want to get their driver's license back they'd have to pay thousands of dollars and most likely hire an attorney and go through a huge amount of bureaucratic steps in order to get back the privilege of driving and it's not because they have you know consistently driven in a reckless way or that they've gotten, They've, or they've driven while intoxicated or anything like that. It's just because they couldn't afford to pay that first ticket. Um, and, you know, I, I deal with clients like that constantly. It's a huge part of what I do, uh, and those cases are very frustrating. But um, if I were to try and reform the system, I, I think that the, um, you know, you do need to have some kind of traffic enforcement, but if you're going to live in uh, a place like North Carolina and also like many other places in the United States where life is very much oriented around the automobile and where it's very difficult to be an independent adult without the ability to drive. Uh, I think that the, um, for one, I think that there should be some kind of, um, uh, some kind of means testing of tickets so that the financial obligations of traffic violations vary based upon the ability of the violator to pay. Uh, I think that when people are unable to pay, that the, the penalty should be something to the effect of uh, taking that money out of their tax returns or something like that and not 
revocation of their license because while I understand, I get why it's an appealing idea to say that, well, you've, you know, you haven't complied with your responsibilities and therefore you're going to lose the privilege of driving. Uh, you know, the way our society is organized in a lot of places in the United States and, and elsewhere around the world, it's just not realistically possible for people to live without the ability to drive in many cases. And um, we wind up just putting poor people in this endless cycle of going to court over and over and over where the original sin was just that they didn't quite have enough money to stay on the right side of the DMV. So it really sounds to me like while uh, public defending is certainly not, as we said in the introduction, really all that glamorous or really get get you gets you in the paper all that much it sounds like you help out a lot of normal everyday people and even people done on their luck a lot um do you find that 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 clients uh realize and appreciate that or do they does it sometimes feel like well thank god i'm leaving and i hope to never see you again (laughs) um uh, it it really really depends, um, and I do I do sometimes tell clients at the end of a case that you know that I hope to never see them again, and I, I you know I say it in a way that I'm like I'm joking, but I'm saying that I hope that they'll never need me again. Um, but no, it's 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 um, it's one of those things where where you know people differ so much from each other, and and sometimes you'll you'll feel like you've poured your heart and soul into a case, and you've done all kinds of work on it, and you've really been a crackerjack lawyer and you'll get some kind of result that you're really happy with. And, uh, and the client will either be outright angry at you or they'll be just like totally, totally apathetic or, you know, won't even shake your hand and they'll just walk out. But then other times you'll, uh, you get people that are really very, um, they're very sweet and very appreciative and you just have to kind of balance the two against the other, against each other. I mean, I, um, I had a client this past week who's, um, he had a, he had a DWI charge and I was able to get the charges dismissed and, um, you know, I don't want to violate confidentiality, but he's a, he's a guy that I really liked quite a bit. He's a very sweet man. And, um, you know, and when, when I called him to tell him that the charges were dismissed, he, uh, I think he, he sounded like he was about to cry on the phone. He was just so happy and so appreciative. And, uh, you know, moments like that really, uh, they make your week. They make you feel very good about yourself and your choices and the world. That's very inspiring and very wonderful. Um, while we're in that uh, schwung, I, I noticed that um, you had this whole discussion about uh, really crazy stories uh, that often happen to you in court. And I was wondering if you could share uh, a few of them uh, with our audience. Um, well, yeah, that is, I, I sometimes tell people this is one of the, the perks of the job is that, um, a lot of weird things happen in court and you get to have a front row seat to it and there's never any lack of stories to tell. Um, oh, what's a good one? Uh, well, I suppose I, you know, I, I was talking on Twitter this morning about how, um, you know, there's a particular judge, uh, in our jurisdiction that I think is, He's very, um, when, he, when he's in district court, he's often very kind of cavalier about, 
the ordinary procedures of court, things like that. And, you know, and so I've had times where he would, he would, uh, you know, I would, um, there'd be a motion in a case. I think specifically the one I was thinking of was that, um, the, uh, the, the state didn't have a witness that they needed on a given day. And they were asking the court to continue the case over to a new court date so they could get the witness. And I was opposing that because I knew that, you know, if, um, if my client, if, if the, uh, if, the judge didn't let them continue the case. Well, they didn't have the witness so that my client would, um, would, uh, the charges against my client would be dismissed. And, uh, you know, I made my argument before the judge for why they shouldn't continue. It, and he just says, uh, you need to, you need to figure it out for yourself. You need to, don't ask me what to do for you. <laughs> and I, you know, and I said to him like, so are you, are, are you granting the motion or not? And he goes, no, you, you need to solve your problems for yourself. I don't want to do it. <laughs> Uh, you know, and this man won an election to be a judge and that was how he was deciding to play it out. Or, um, I know the, uh, let's see, the, the very first week that I was on the job, I saw a trial with about five different defendants. And what had happened was there had been a, a young man and a young woman that had been dating and they had, um, you know, they had, they had parted ways and it was not very amicable. And she had, um, gone to the magistrate and told the magistrate that, that he had been stalking her and that he had beaten her. And, you know, and so he was charged over all this stuff and his court date came along. And when his court date came along, she showed up to court and she went there with her mother and with her new boyfriend and his family showed up to court. So his brother was there and his girl, his sister was there and his mother was there and he won. And the courtroom they were in was just, it's a single room and it was separated from the parking lot by this, you know, plate glass window. And so they all, the case gets over and they all walk out of court and they're all walking out into the parking lot together at the same time. And this, this young woman who had taken uh, the charges out, she was very unhappy. And she was so unhappy that uh, she threw a punch at, uh, at, at her ex-boyfriend's mother who is this, you know, 50-some-year-old woman with scoliosis. And, and, and of course, the, you know, the brother and the sister are right there, and they see this woman is, has assaulted their mother, and so they start assaulting her right back. And then the new boyfriend sees that now this girl is being beaten up by the sister and the brother of the ex, and so the new boyfriend runs to his truck, and he grabs a baseball bat, and he runs over with a baseball bat. But this entire thing has been taking place uh, in clear view of the judge and the, the, the bailiff and the clerk and everybody. And so by this time, the bailiff has run outside and he breaks the fight up. <laughs> and, and essentially everybody charges everybody with something over this. And you wind up with this giant mess of a trial uh, with five defendants. And, and, and then this, uh, you know, this young woman that was so angry that she threw a first punch was also so angry uh, when it went to trial that she didn't really understand what she was doing and testified that she threw the first punch at this woman that had done nothing to her. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and uh, anyway, and so everybody got acquitted except for this young woman. And, and this was, I think this was, uh, two days into the job. I saw this trial and I was just like, Oh my goodness. So this is, <laughs> I guess this is what justice is like out here. <laughs> and, and we, we see stuff like this all the time. There's a ton of like, um, just family disputes of neighbors uh, that get in fights with each other and, and um, 
you know, people that are in romantic relationships and people that have problems with their extended family and just all, all kinds of stuff like this. It's really, um, it's, uh, it's really wild sometimes. Wow. Um, it, it, it really sounds like a very, um, very town hallish kind of a, kind of an atmosphere, if you will. So given the good stuff, the bad stuff, the could be improved stuff that you told me, uh, what kind of advice, to finish off, what kind of advice would you uh, offer to someone who is in law school, but who, like yourself, uh, very strongly believes in providing everybody a defense? What advice would you give them if they're thinking of becoming a public defender? And on the other side of it, what advice do you have uh, just in general for anyone listening if, you know, God forbid they somehow run afoul of the law? Um, let's see. Well, for, um, for aspiring public defenders or, or defense attorneys in general, I, I don't think I have any really uh, any advice that they're likely to have not heard before. But um, the thing is that what you learn in law school is necessary to, uh, to be a public defender and it's necessary to pass the bar. But, um, what you actually, the skills you actually need to do the job are very distinct, um, from what law school teaches you. And so any kind of, um, clinics and internships and things like that are incredibly important. Uh, I think that, I think the thing, the thing I would say is that being a good public defender is, I think being what you would sort of traditionally think as the lawyerly parts of it are only a small part of what you do. And you really are, you know, mostly a lawyer, but also a little bit of a kind of a family counselor and a little bit of a social worker and a little bit of an investigator. And um, you just need to kind of be prepared to, to, um, to be able to approach people and, and sometimes to approach people that, that, that are, um, that might seem unpleasant, unpleasant or irrational or kind of hard to empathize with and, um, and, and find a way to, you know, to get to know them and to, um, understand them and, and find the humanity that, that you share with, with them, because that's, I think the really, the really critical thing about the job is that you just have to be able to, um, to understand your clients and, um, and to understand why it is that what you're doing for them is important and why it is that, that what's happening to them matters. Um, and for the general public, if they're worried about potentially um, running afoul of the criminal justice system in the future, uh, my number one advice would be to shut up and to not say anything about whatever's going on and especially to not say anything to the police and to get a defense attorney. Okay, sounds great. Uh, Zeke, you have uh, definitely opened my eyes and uh, provided some very interesting story fodder too uh, for the life of a public defender and I hope uh, our audience has appreciated it. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Avi.